Welcome, everybody. I am Jesse Mogul, and thank you for joining us on the American Contingency Podcast. We are a united nationwide community of steadfast Americans ready for any challenge that comes our way. We inform, equip, and train so you can prepare, respond, and recover from any man-made or natural disaster or situation. And today I have an absolute amazing guest for you. He is the Delaware organizer of the Northeast region. He has a history in law enforcement as well as serving two tours overseas, one in Iraq, one in Afghanistan for National Guard. Absolutely fantastic to have Kevin Outen on the show today. Kevin, welcome. How are you? Thank you, Jesse. I'm doing great. Really glad to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. As always, it's great to meet members of the American Contingency Network, and especially because of the work you're doing there in the state of Delaware. What, I mean, I feel like, I mean, obviously I asked you this before we got on camera, so I already know the answer. And this is one I have heard repeated by most of the guests who've come on this show, if not all of them. What got you into American Contingency? Uh, Without a doubt, it was uh, Mike Glover's video on YouTube. Get off the bench. Everybody has heard about this now who's listened to the show. I think I'm I'm actually going to literally write down, put the Glover video in the show notes. So if people have not seen it, seen it yet, they can go see it. When you heard him telling everybody to get off the bench, and you had already been off the bench, right? You did law enforcement. You are a, a former National Guard member. So you had clearly you know, put your money where your mouth is in the past. Now, all of a sudden, you're bringing those talents to the American contingency. When you heard him say, get off the bench, you went and found American contingency and you joined. What were the strengths and talents you were desiring to bring to us? Well, it's kind of it's kind of threefold. So law enforcement was a a very short career for me. Uh, It was not what I expected. So I was only in it about seven years, but I got to do a lot of training on an instructor level. And that always appealed to me. And then when I transferred into the full-time National Guard force as an AGR soldier, I was able to continue with that. So what I had hoped to bring to AMCON and and Delaware specifically was an operations and training and planning type experience level, because that's what I ended up doing for about half of my career. I was an operations sergeant, uh, both before and after uh, the two deployments that you were so kind to mention to Iraq and Afghanistan. So I really like putting training together, seeing where people are as individuals, and then helping them figure out how they can also get off the bench, like Mike told us, and just improve their skill sets and being prepared for really any scenario where they might have to become self-reliant. I love how you said that you were only in law enforcement for a short amount of time, and that was seven years. <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's an awful long time to be considered short time. But I do know that, you know, generally I think retirement is at 20 to 25 year mark. So when you left law enforcement, you still felt like you had more to bring to our country. And is that what drove you into the national guard? Is that how you chose them over the other branches of the military? Actually, no, you know, that's, that's kind of funny. So I got hired very young in law enforcement and I had an army recruiter call me and I had no desire to go in the military whatsoever, but my desire had always been to be in law enforcement. So I went into the reserves under the um, delay and entry program way back in the day. I don't even know if they still have that anymore, but long story short, I went from the reserves into the national guard because my first MOS was as a military police officer and the Delaware national guard had a combat support MP company. 
And that's what I really liked. I, I didn't want to really do anything as far as getting in an MP patrol car and patrolling around on post because I was already doing that on the civilian side. So the combat support aspect and the training that went into that is what really appealed to me. And it just took off. And I did uh, 20 years and six days of AGR duty, everything from counter drug to logistics, to Intel, to communications, to ops, to transportation. Like it was just a wonderful career. And I, and I just hope to roll all those skills up now that I've been retired a few years and pass them along to the next generation of any AMCON member. That's amazing. I love that. I love the background. So people have a better idea of the depth of your knowledge, because we had discussed this pre-microphone that, you know, you have a lot of strengths in the training and the organization and the plans and the operations. And so with your role being the Delaware organizer, Kevin, how do you see American contingency and the role you're playing, tailoring its approach to building resiliency and preparedness unique to the needs of the members of your state of Delaware? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Delaware is a very unique state, uh, very small, second smallest state in the nation. <clears throat> and we're actually split into two very different and distinct groups. Our, our northern county, uh, Newcastle County, is, is more akin to Philadelphia with a large urban city, at least on Delaware standards in Wilmington and, and such. And then the lower two counties of which I live in, we're very agrarian still. You know, we have some urban development, obviously, but most of us uh, live on area that is surrounded by farmland. So to try to mesh those two groups into a, a mindset of preparedness and self-reliance really dictates where their, where their immediate area where they live is, because things are going to be different in Newcastle County if, God forbid, a natural disaster came and took out one of our bridges. They're, they're not going to be able to necessarily get to us down here and vice versa. So being prepared in a rural environment is, is different than being prepared in urban environment on certain aspects. And with my um, experience I've got in the military, you know, I've seen both. I've prepared for both with different um, op, you know, operational environments, if you will. And trying to spread that out and give people that skill is just a challenge for me. So right now we're trying to build the group and then kind of tailor what the needs are going to be to the northern part of the state and then the southern part of the state. I love the flexibility that you're bringing into this. And, and I'm mentioning the word flexibility strategically to bring this segue into it, that for those of you who've noticed that we might be getting a little bit of microphone mush on Kevin's end, we are currently going through a solar flare here in the United States uh, today, as well as he has been battling with the smoke coming down from Canada. And so since we've organized this meeting to be on today, we're going to roll with it, even with, if we do get a little audio uh, fuzz. I just wanted to let the listeners out there understand that we have noticed it as well. And, and it's just a bit of a blip, but it's a bit of a blip, but I wanted to at least um, be transparent and let you guys know what's going on. There's solar flares, which is pretty crazy when you start thinking about all the different things that can happen, Kevin, in our lives that can begin to influence our behaviors and what ultimately should be major thought processes around how to be prepared. And when we were talking pre-microphone, uh, just getting to know each other before this uh, started all up, we just 
discuss the differences in what rural communities need versus what the city communities need. And a lot of states are dealing with this, whereas the, the major um, urban populations, they desire certain things from the government, certain things in, in order to be prepared for natural disasters versus what a rural community would need. As you have been helping the state of Delaware figure out how to help the cities be prepared, which is going to be very different than how the country side needs to be prepared. What have you been noticing are some of the big blocks that you have had to help your members work through? So to caveat that, uh, the biggest block that I see really comes not necessarily from the AMCON members from Newcastle County, because they want to be self-reliant, but the people that they have to deal with in these large urban environments. And the thing that you and I touched on was you know, as Americans, when you pay your taxes, you expect a product from the government. And I think that the people in the urban environments expect a lot more when it comes to the government helping them, whether it's through transportation uh, or housing or various types of assistance. Down here where I live in, in the lower part of the state, being from an agrarian type environment my entire life and growing up with other farmers and you know friends that their families were farmers as well. We tend to just be a little more naturally self-reliant. So we don't expect down here the government to provide, for example, on, on a very baseline level here, we don't expect transportation. I don't expect the government to show up with a bus to pick me up, to take me somewhere. If I want to go somewhere, I get in a car. If I don't have a car, I get on a bike. If I don't have a bike, then I use the old, the old uh, model of heel to toe express. And I think in the urban environments, because things are so close and so compact, those just become expectations where in a rural environment, there is no expectation for the government to come save you. Did you say heel to toe? Is that in reference to walking? Yes, heel to toe express. <laughs> I have not ever heard it called that way. And I'm, I'm a huge proponent for the heel to toe express. So I actually walk 10,000 steps a day just to feel like, I, and I've got a weight vest in the whole thing. Cause I'm like, you know, one day I might have to walk with a really heavy backpack. So I have a 50 pound weight vest that I wear around the neighborhood when I get my steps, just so that I'm prepared to carry 50 pounds on my back. Yep. I did the same thing this morning. And I actually, I actually have a secondary location. We have a family farm that's a few miles from where I live and I actually map out the miles and I try to walk at least half of that distance with my pack on. Now it's on a treadmill. So, you know, I'm not like moving and shaking out in the hot sun, but I try to do that same thing that you do. And I think that physical fitness is, is a huge part of being self-reliant and, and prepared on a very basic level. It really is. You know, I have been into physical fitness uh, most of my adult life, but really got into it whenever I got sober. And uh, something that I talk a lot with people about is that, you know, can your physical body actually weather the storm after the storm? Like, are you physically prepared? When you think about a meaningful difference that you've been able to make, and when I say you, let's, let's just span this out to American contingency at, at large, a meaningful difference you've been able to make in your community, whether it be, you know, talking more about physical self-reliance or, you know, the heel to toe express or keeping food and water in their house. What's a meaningful difference that you can look back upon and say, yeah, we really shifted the community in this way. Well, it's still in process, to be honest with you. You know, right before I retired, I did the the, the cliche 
small business and started teaching um, firearms instruction because it's a big part of being in the military and it's something that we're familiar with. And what I've tried to do, especially since becoming a member of AMCON, is push people and shape them in a positive way that when they think of a firearm for self-defense, because 99% of the people that come to my classes are simply looking to defend themselves and their family. Now that I'm a little more familiar with AMCON and the, and the purpose that we have, I try to expand on that as far as the topics go in my classes that, hey, you can, you can buy a firearm and you can take all the training in the world. And for three days, you'll be fine until you dehydrate. Or for three weeks, you'll be fine until you run out of food. You know, or for three hours, you'll be fine until you don't have any shelter. And that really piques a lot of interest from people when they start to look at this on a very grand scale that this one segue, this one firearms course, I try to use that to segue into this self-reliant mindset and lifestyle. And then obviously mention AMCON just about in every class that I teach to let people know that regardless of what they're into, Jesse, whether it's backyard chickens or you know gardening, that there's a group on AMCON that can help them become better at whatever they want to be better at. So I, I don't think I'll ever stop as far as that goes to me, I look at that as like the, what the army had with their operations process, you know, it was ongoing all the time. And that's how I look at trying to shape the community. It'll, it'll never end. It'll always be ongoing and it'll change as needs change. When you mention American contingency to people, whether they're in the guns training, the firearms training that you're doing, or just outside in, you know, your normal day-to-day life, do you see what we do you know, as far as helping people become prepared to respond and recover, are there potential barriers you're running into where they think that we're just a bunch of preppers living underneath bunkers? Is is there an initial sort of reaction that they have about what AMCON does that, that becomes a block that you have to sort of, you know, talk them through so that they realize that we're really just about self-sufficiency and reliancy on our own selves and families and or our communities? Absolutely. And the, the biggest thing that I see uh, from people, because, you know, the Again, the majority of the people that I'm dealing with uh, through my firearms classes in general conversation tend to be law enforcement, military, or people that want to defend themselves. So they they don't really know about AMCON, which is part of my job as an organizer is to let them know about AMCON, let them know some of the, what I would consider the, the very important, but maybe ancillary topics like the backyard chickens, like the gardening. And I only say ancillary in the sense that they're there for a firearms class, right? Not that it's not any less important because it's not. However, the the big hiccup right now that I'm finding just in my area is that people that are familiar with AMCON and saw the, you know, the video or Mike comes out and says, hey, you know, the government said we're on this, this list. And, you know, he had his contacts that told him all that. A lot of people are a little um, leery of the government right now. So what I try to tell them is regardless of any list, regardless of anything that the government's doing, it's not about being on a list. It's not about not being on a list. It's about being better at taking care of you and your family. So that's that's a big thing that I have to overcome in conversations when people are familiar with AMCON. If they're not familiar with it, then it's not an issue. Yeah, that whole idea of being on a list with the way social media and our phones track us, I feel like we're all on lists at this point. I would have to agree with that at, at some level. I mean, you think about it, you could talk into your phone on 
Facebook about something you were looking for and an ad pops up. And, you know, the, the thing is, what I try to tell people about these proverbial lists, if you will, whether they're real or not. I mean, I, I don't know. If they got them, they got them. It's just the way I see it. But we did it to ourselves. You know, when you buy a phone and you allow it to have access to your life 24-7, you know, if you believe in a free capital market, then people are going to track you because nobody reads the terms or the licenses that you give these people to monitor you. No, we do not, because I don't have to have time for 47 pages. And then all, you're right uh, about the phones listening in, because me and my friends were just having this conversation the other day. Uh, we were up in Indiana going to a concert, and we were talking about this pizza place, uh, Luminati's. They're huge fans of it. And sure enough, the next day, all of a sudden, on their Facebook pages was ads for this pizza place. And it was like, they've never searched in Facebook for this pizza place, and now all of a sudden, there's ads for it. And I'm like, yep, see, it is further proof that they're listening. The good thing about that, though, is that if you can bring that to bear in a, in a realistic fashion, you know, do you have social media? You had to agree to their terms and conditions. And, what, and if you didn't read it, then you didn't read it. But you put yourself on whatever list you think you're on. So why not put yourself into a group of people that think like you that just want to be better citizens? Like, I can't think of any higher purpose than to just be a better citizen than what you were yesterday. I love that. I love that. One of the things I came up with as a teenager, you know, was that every single day I wanted my head to hit the pillow feeling like I did something to better myself today. I did something to better my family. I did something to better my community. Like each day, what's just one step forward that we can take? And American Contingency is a huge community of that. And when you think about what you've been able to do within the state of Delaware, have there been any kind of natural or man-made disasters that you yourself have been able to influence through the American Contingency Network so that people could come out of that in a better place than they would have been without us? We just had, uh, it's probably been a few months now, because when you get to be my age, time flies, but <laughs> we just had a, a hurricane come through uh, a few months ago. Uh, at a, in, in, a, in a town about 10 minutes from where I live. And what I try to do now in, in talking to people about AMCON is because remember, we're, we're building our, our groups now. You know, we're a small state with a small amount of people, but we're building and we're getting better. But to be able to use the natural disasters as an example of how to prepare and what are some things you can look for and where can you go? Like, like my ready plan, right? Like I talk to people about that all the time, like my ready plan, go join AMCON, get on there, go to my ready plan, print it off, fill it out. And if you got any questions, then let me know and I'll help you get prepared because some people get overwhelmed with the idea of somebody not being there, i.e. the government or, or family or friends or a church. Like people are scared sometimes to really, tackle the challenge of if I'm really on my own, what can I do? And I think that for me as, as an organizer, that's something I want to help them overcome in a very realistic step-by-step -step fashion. When you've been able to embed some of this knowledge that you have around the training, the organizational management, the plans, the operations, whenever you've been able to bring this to your community, 
what has been the growth in their psychological resiliency that you've noticed? Because Lori Marino came on and talked extensively about this. And for anybody who hasn't had a chance to go and listen to her episode yet, I would highly recommend that you tap into episode seven and go listen to her discuss the emotional and psychological resiliency. Kevin, I'd love to hear your take on what this has brought to the community the more they learn about self-sufficiency and realizing, wait, I actually can do a lot on my end ahead of the emergency to be prepared for the aftermath of the emergency. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I could, I'll, you know, they say all good instructors, like you should have 10% of your time based on yourself. But I, if I could, uh, I'll tell you about my wife. I was working on, I was working an emergency with the guard uh, and our power went out. This was years ago. And quite frankly, we, both of us were an epic fail. I was far enough away. I couldn't get home. And our kids were really little and we had preteens at the time as well. And it was an epic fail, Jesse. And we decided from that moment on that we would take realistic steps not to have to worry about the power going out or a natural disaster. And we sat down and we really started to think about it. We started to make our plans and then we started to prepare and then we started to purchase. See, that's a, that's a big thing. You can plan and you can prepare and prepare, let's say, you know, you have, a, you have a mindset of this is what I would do, but you have to prioritize and you have to purchase certain things. And over the years, we've been able to purchase, um, for example, our, our latest investment was a freeze dryer. Before that, it was an alternate heating source where we didn't need electric to heat the house because the priority was obviously, you know, shelter, food, water. And we've done all that. So giving that amount of confidence to people through like, Hey, look, we did it. You know, we're just, we're regular blue collar people. I mean, I did, I retired as a first sergeant. I wasn't a Colonel or Sergeant major or general or whatever, you know, I'm, I mean, I was working for a living and my wife, you know, bless her heart, man, she's an RN. So we work and to be able to talk to other people like us, regular citizens, regular Americans, blue collar and tell them you can do this. And I know you can do it because we've done it that gives them all the confidence in the world because a lot of people think that they can't do it and they can. And to give them that positive mental outlook really means the world to me more than, more than anything, giving them that confidence that they can do it. Great personal story there that brings in a point that I probably would have just breezed over is that you can take time and it might take years in order to fully get all of the supplies that you would ultimately like to have post-disaster, post-emergency. It might take you some time, but that's what you're doing. You're spending a little bit of money here, spending a little bit of money there, strategically picking what it is to purchase in order to have the things that you know you would desire post-emergency, post-disaster. So I'm really glad that you brought that up, that it took some time for you to accumulate all your resources, but that you and your wife and your family are being very mindful of what resources you desire and then seeking a way to make those things happen for yourself on, you know, quote unquote, a normal everyday American budget. Absolutely. There's very few people, I think, or at least in, in my area, can afford to spend, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars at one time to buy, you know, freeze dried food that shows up to your house on a pallet or something. Like, I'm, Literally, I know like two guys that could do that in my area. Everybody else has to do it the old fashioned way. You've got to learn how to preserve food. You know, we still have ladies in our area that teach other ladies how to can food freeze-dry food, dehydrate food, grow food. 
And they can do those things bit by bit and learn from one another. And then once they learn the skill and they're not going to forget it as long as you keep doing it, now all of a sudden you see somebody and they're like, you know, thank you very much for this class. And now I'm going to do you know, whatever the class was. For example, like we're doing one Sunday on processing poultry. That's, it's a lost art anymore, you know, because we're so used to buying everything in a grocery store. So we might have some people come over for that and giving them that skill and that positive mental attitude that they can survive means the world. I would come to your poultry class in a heartbeat. <laughs> I've always wanted to know how to do that. I just think, you know, I mean, I, I can clean a chicken from the big box stores. I can clean that thing in like a minute and a half. But I've often wondered, like, what would it be like to literally have a chicken in front of me and being like, I got to defeather it and de foot it and de-neck it and yeah. so how awesome that y'all do that and you again you just keep bringing up fascinating points here that i may have breezed over had you not said something but you mentioned like you learn a skill and as long as you continue to do it that skill stays with you and i think that's important that you can go off and you can learn to can or you can learn to process a chicken or you can go to a firearms training but if you don't continue practicing and doing that skill I mean, like anything else, you can, you can get rusty, it can eventually fade away. So I think that's important that you bring up that this idea that you can learn something, but then still put yourself in a position, get other people in your community together, teach them how to do it, and then you get to keep your skills fresh as well. Sure, sure. And I just like passing on knowledge. I think as you get older, you, know, you want to pass these things on to people because you don't want it to become a lost art. And that's really what it is. I mean, taking... It, for just just talk chickens for a second because I know we got a huge chicken contingent on Amcon. You know, you you take this little chick and you grow it, and then at some point you have to get past the emotion of, wow, like I grew this thing, and then you have to process it because you know that if you're trying to feed a family, your family's more important than that particular piece of poultry. So trying to separate all of that and to teach people like, hey, if you do this. You know, like we've got women in our family and they they become attached to these animals more than the men. And you've just got to tell them, well, you have to look at it, that this is a process and we know what we fed it and we know what's going into our bodies. And then it becomes a whole gamut of the benefits of living a life like this, where, you know, you're really trying to be self-reliant and you're, you're looking at the world outside of the Walmart view where you can just go to Walmart and buy everything. You know, one of these days, like every other big chain, Walmart's not going to be around. Somebody else will probably replace them, but they're just not going to be around. And then like, and then what? Because we actually have people, not in Amcon, but in the United States that think their meat comes from the grocery store. Like they believe that. Yes, they do. That is a real it, thing. It's astounding. It really is that we, I mean, we used to teach Latin. <laughs> now yeah. people think meat comes from the grocery store. <laughs> well, and that's that separation that humans have allowed themselves to flow into from the from the food chain where we we just think oh you know nature can't hurt us because we're humans and we've developed all of these different things that can protect us and it's like man mother nature is unforgiving and we've separated ourselves from the food chain you're right where people are like oh you know where does chicken come from it comes from walmart i'm like no it comes from an actual poultry farm and this is the way the chickens are being handled and i was raised on a tiny little family farm where yes uh we definitely named our pigs and our chickens and the eaten rabbit in the backyard but when it was time to eat those, I was taught 
you know, we did a little prayer for the animal for sacrificing for us, but it was like, yeah, I, we loved Mr. Bunny ears, but Mr. Bunny ears was not going to be dinner. And it was something that I was taught at a young age. Like you honor the food that nourishes your body, but ultimately your family having nourishment is why this animal is in our backyard to begin with. Yeah. And I, you know, if you want to go on a macro scale, as far as mindset, getting away from, from that, you know, going into this, um, Oh my gosh, just in time supply, you know, logistics chain, if you will, getting, getting away from processing your own food, growing your own food on a macro level has led, I think in, in some small respects to the, the reason that we have such a problem in society today, everything is throwaway. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you get into raising your own food and being self-reliant, you start to learn like, okay, I'm out of coffee, but can I use the coffee tin for something? You start to learn those things. And really, it's going back in time to how my grandparents treated everything that they had. You know, I can I can still go to my grandmother's house today. She's not with us anymore, but the house is still there. And we still have family that lives there. I can still go there today and find boards that predate my very existence that they have, you know, from 100 years ago. Literally, I can do that and take, take that mindset and to pass it on to people that, you can be self-reliant. You don't need someone else telling you how to live your life. Let me help you in this environment. You know, and then whatever that environment is depends on the person you're talking to. But to help them be self-reliant makes everybody better. Them, their community, their friends, their family, et cetera. What are some of the things, and you may have just touched upon them just now, Kevin. What are some of the things that bring you hope for what society could actually attain itself towards, regardless of all, you know, it feels like life is very chaotic, at least since the turn of this century, it just seems like there's been a lot of chaos going on. What brings you hope? Well, for me, um, I have a, I have a deep faith in the Lord. So I always have, I always have hope, but I'm also, I'm, I'm a fighting pessimist, right? So I fight my pessimism all the time. And I think that's just out looking at humanity as a whole and thinking, what in the heck is going on? But what gives me hope outside of my faith is people that are in organizations like AMCON, the people that come to the classes that I give or some of my other instructors give, where they say, hey, I just want to protect my family. You know, to see that level of protection, to see that level of love that they have for their wives or their husbands or their children or their moms and dads, that gives me hope. And to have a, an environment, a community like AMCON, and to be able to talk that up to people that are, that are just like us, there's a lot more of us than there are of people that, that maybe have a different mindset of the way the world should work. And I'm really, I'm really happy that AMCON is in existence because I get to meet great people from all over that have the same mindset I do. So that's what gives me hope. You know, the guys that are in Amcon that I've become friends with, and then just people in general that are looking to be better citizens through being self-reliant. I love that. I love that, Kevin. That was awesome. I'm going to get you out of here on this. And this is my big closing question. So you've listened to the podcast. You knew it was coming. I mean, given the current state of affairs and everybody, that's subjective to everybody's own perspective. But I think we can all generally as a country realize 
things seem very shaky. There's a lot of discontent. There seems like there's a lot of animosity, a lot of anger. Social media seems to want to cancel everybody for blinking the wrong way. With many people feeling uneasy about the trajectory of our country and, and really the planet at large, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the matter. And you know, if you had this opportunity to send a message to the entire country, what would be something that you'd want them to hear about what is happening right now and where we actually could go with this if we all just united as one and started working together? We could go wherever we wanted if we wanted to work together to, to truly cross the aisle and understand that certain people are going to have you know, different ideologies, different political standpoints. But what we have to do is show mutual respect while standing up for our beliefs. And I think the one thing that uh, people can do is stand on their beliefs for traditional values. There's nothing wrong with traditional values. And I believe that as long as you're quiet about things, uh, you're like the frog in the proverbial boiling pot. Before you know it, you're upside down because you let the water boil around you without doing anything. So we can go wherever we want as a nation. I'm, I'm actually kind of excited to see where we're going to go uh, throughout the next election to see if we're going to teeter more towards uh, communism and socialism and all those other isms and see how that works out or not. I honestly, Jesse, I'll be, I'm one of those guys, I don't necessarily worry about the bad because there's so many good, honest patriots in this country. And I think when the time is right, they'll stand up and America will be just fine. I concur, my friend. If this is the darkness, it's certainly a lot brighter than other other major superpowers have had to face in the history of this planet. And I feel like we're not as shaky as people think we are. And certainly there's some very important decisions we need to make as a country moving forward over the next year or so that will ultimately determine, you know, how the twenties wrap up. The 1920s were not great. We walked into that decade with the roaring twenties. And by the end of it, we had a huge financial catastrophe that only the world war two could pull us out of. So certainly I do hope and pray that we don't look for a war to pull us out of things as much as we start to rely upon one another and realize, okay, you might believe differently than me just because you're not my friend doesn't make you my enemy. Right. Sir, it has been an honor to have you on the show. I've really enjoyed it. Is there anything else that you'd like to say, your final words before we get you out of here? No, I, listen, I'm just very appreciative for the opportunity. I, I love the Amcon community and, and where we're going. You know, like I know Texas just got their own page. Of course, that fits. You know, they're they're Texas. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm just I'm just super excited to see where Amcon is going to go, and I'm appreciative of everybody that joins, and just wants to be a better citizen. That's what's going to make a better America. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for your service in the law enforcement as well as the National Guard, and even more so, I want to thank you for bringing all of those skills to the American contingency community. Uh, it is a breath of fresh air to meet another fellow citizen uh, on the show and be able to introduce you out there and for everybody who listens to be able to get to know a little bit more about you and what you've been doing there in the state of Delaware. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Absolutely. Okay, my friends, that's it. Kevin Alton, you've been an amazing guest. As always, my friends, when you're ready to build the skills, the network, and the confidence to be ready for whatever comes next, join us at AmericanContingency.com. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.